0: This is the last sermon on 1 Peter in 2022. We're going to resume in the new year and finish off this great book. <clears throat> but I wanted to, to bring this message from chapter 5, which has to do with pastors, has to do with uh, people like me, people like Steve. And uh this is a, a a message about how overseers, how pastors and so on, how they are to be. And of course, by extension, it is a message to you for how we're to be. And so uh Let me read these first four verses from 1 Peter chapter 5. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, this is a challenging passage, and there are a number of passages in the New Testament that speak particularly Two pastors, and all of them have to be considered. I'm not going to bring them all into this sermon because we're expounding this particular passage, but they are all challenging, and they all have to have, uh, they all have to be considered by anyone who would want to be in the ministry. Um, there are several things that. Um, Pastors or elders, he speaks about them here. Um, the old King James, when it spoke about about uh, overseeing bishops, because that's what the word means, to oversee. Um, these are all, as far as Peter is concerned, in this early church setting, they're all basically one role. In this church, we have pastors. Uh, or a senior pastor like myself who's not a voting elder and we have elders, there's nothing wrong with that as long as that they do the work of God in a biblical way. You'll find in Presbyterian churches you'll have uh, presbyters who preach and you'll have non-preaching presbyters who do administration and so on. You have all kinds of different ways of of, uh, doing things. As long as they're doing the work of God, Uh, We shouldn't really uh, quibble about these things. But they better be doing the work of God. And this means that they better be called. Now, Peter is somebody, of course, who in Jesus' most trying and desperate hour did what? Denied him. Denied him. Three times he denied him. And he got into the habit of it. And so you have to understand that as coming from somebody who, when he's writing this, no doubt recalled the lowest point of his life. He says, he exhorts the elders... As a fellow elder, not as an apostle. Sometimes, you see, the apostles had to pull the apostolic card on people. We find Paul doing this in Galatians. We find John doing it more subtly but quite strongly in 3 John. Peter doesn't do that. Peter brings himself to the level of a fellow elder because we're here to serve God. And we better never forget that. If we forget that and think we're here to serve ourselves and you guys are here to serve us or for us to, you know, you you guys are kind of accessories for what we're doing. We've got it all wrong. Our motives are wrong. Our ministries are wrong. Our idea of what the ministry is, is wrong. This better be for God. So Peter shows humility here in calling himself a fellow elder. But then he calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now don't tell me that Jesus, that sorry, that Peter saw all of the sufferings of Christ. He didn't. He legged it with the rest of them. The women did. They were there before the cross. John may have seen some things, but some of the others, they decided this was a good time to get out of town. So what does he mean? Well, certainly he did see the cross-examination of Jesus, didn't he, before Pilate, at least for a while. After Jesus turned and looked at him, after the third denial, we are told that he cried. He went out and wept bitterly. So whether he saw any more, I'm not sure. But what did he see? He did not see a Jesus who was uh, clean, well-dressed, um, all tidied up, fit to see a Roman procurator. He saw a battered and bruised and bloody Lord. He'd already been beaten by the soldiers. And so certainly he did see some of the sufferings of Christ. But also in saying this, of course, he would know that the people that he's writing to would know all about the story of Jesus and his denial of Christ. And therefore, he, I think, is deliberately recalling that. And he's recalling it both for humility's sake and then also for the sake of teaching that somebody who even did that, denied Jesus, can be restored because he calls himself here a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So the one who denied Jesus three times in Jesus' most uh, dire distress is going to be a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed for all of the saints. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of forgiveness and compassion and grace. And that's important. That's important for me. That's important for you. Because maybe there are things that you've done in your life. Things that bug you. That bother your conscience. That you think God could never forgive. That that's too far. You don't know, Pastor Paul. You don't know What I've done, you don't know what I've thought, you don't know the depths of my depravity. No I don't, and I don't want to either. But God does. And here's the thing. God knows more about you and your sin than you do. He understands, let me put it in Jesus' words, that you are evil. You say, what? What on earth? Where do you get that from? I got it from the words of Jesus. He said to his own disciples, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to those whom you love, how much more does the Heavenly Father give gifts to those whom he loves? Well, if the disciples of Jesus are evil and, he's, and they're following him around and learning from him, then I think we can call ourselves evil too. And that's a very good place for us to start. Because if we see ourselves as in ourselves being evil, we're not going to try to present ourselves as good. We're not going to deceive ourselves that God thinks we're okay. We're going to see ourselves in need of God's grace. And God has grace. He has enough grace. He has amazing grace. As John Newton, the slave trader, wrote in that song. Because that's what he was. He was a slave trader. You done any slave trading recently? Well, if God can forgive him, he can forgive you. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ Believe that he died on the cross for your sins. Believe that God wants to love you if you will trust in Jesus and all of your slate will be wiped clean. Peter knew that. You yourself can be like Peter, a partaker of the future glory. And boy, that's going to be some glory. I can't. You know, I, I try to imagine it, but there's no point in me imagining it from this, this side of the kingdom. Because even though I see hints of it in flowers and sunsets and clouds that pass over calm skies and the green grass and the birds chirping and all those things, those pastoral things that we think about, those things are going to be transformed. Those things are going to be bettered. And our understandings, our way of seeing, our way of hearing, our way of relating to all of that is going to be changed too. Because we will see these things and understand these things and comprehend these things without sin. Without being, uh, our, our minds being blinded by our own sin. We see, Paul says, through a glass, darkly. That means we'll look, you know, as far as our our understanding and our comprehension of the kingdom that's to come, the glory that will be revealed, it's like we're looking through Coke bottle glasses in the twilight. We don't see very much, but we can see hints. God one day is going to take those Coke bottle glasses off and he's going to turn the lights on. And we, if we've trusted Jesus, will be a partaker of that glory. That's the hope of the Christian. And it's a sure hope because it's founded and guaranteed by God. God. And so, speaking particularly to the elders, and the word, the Greek word there. If you want to know the Greek word, which you probably don't, but I'm going to give it to you, because it's it's kind of useful in in this uh, in this case. It's presbyteros, presbyteros, where you get the word, the term Presbyterian, yeah. So the Presbyterian denomination they got their name from this Greek word of presbyteros, okay. Elder the elders I exhort, who as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, now partaker of the glory that will be revealed, and then he tells them what he wants: Shepherd, the flock of God, which is among you. Another Greek word for you: Poimenes. That's the word for shepherd. You say, well, so what? It's, uh, it means, it's, it's main meaning is to tend the flock or to feed the flock. That's the main meaning, to feed. Okay? After all, when somebody, when, uh, somebody employs a shepherd to do, to tend a flock, What's the main thing that needs to be done for the flock? They need to be fed, which means they need to be taken from this field to that field, and the shepherd is the one who does that, Make sure that they, f- they have enough food. Now, he also tends to them. If any are injured and so on, he looks out for them. If any are falling back or whatever, he looks out for them. And you can push the metaphor too far, of course. But the main idea of a shepherd is tending for the flock by feeding them. And so the old King James actually had feed the flock of God. So elders are shepherds and the Latin term, you're into Greek, Latin, English, we're giving you all this morning, okay? The Latin term is pastor. Where we get our word pastor from. A pastor is supposed to feed the flock of God. That's the idea. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as, this is the last Greek word, I promise, episcopoi. Have you heard of episcopalians? Okay, that's where they get that from. means overseers, okay? Serving as overseers. People that watch over the flock. People that make sure that they know their flock, make sure that things are going okay with the flock. So the shepherds are to mainly tend the flock, and the most important thing is to feed the flock. Not the only thing, but it's the most important thing. Now, why is this important? This is important because, remember Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry was mainly a teaching ministry, Yes, he did signs and wonders, but those signs and wonders corroborated his teaching and his identity, of course, as the Messiah. They also were intimations of the change, the transformation that will happen in the coming kingdom. So, we are to, if we're pastors or we want to be Pastors, we need to make sure that we understand that we are to feed the flock. Now, this is where I must say something because uh, it is just a very sad and unfortunate thing that many churches do not emphasize the teaching of the word of God. They do not emphasize the teaching of the Word of God. What is a church, after all? A church just means a a called-out company. That's the... I'm not giving giving you the Greek word, don't worry. It means a called-together company, okay? That's what the church is. But under the Word of God. Under the Word of God. The Word of God has to be taught... Jesus went about teaching. The disciples, the apostles, they went about teaching. A church is particularly a called out group of saints who are under the word of God. Or is it? Sometimes today, it's not that. Sometimes, unfortunately, churches today are concerned with Uh, all kinds of other things, and the central focus of the New Testament is all but ignored or downplayed. Other things take center stage. Signs and wonders, for example. Health and wealth and prosperity. Tickling the ears, making people feel good. Okay, feel-good, soothing messages. God loves you and he has a great plan for your life. And as I said last week, anyone who says that, point them to 1 Peter because it's all about suffering. God does have a great plan for your life, but it might include suffering before you get to the good stuff. It'll end up fine, great, beyond your wildest dreams, but you may have to go through a lot of... Trouble, before you get there. You know, Christian programs, they are good things. They can be good things. But they can also sideline the main activity of the church. So I've known churches which have got a lot of programs especially for the kids, but they don't focus on feeding the flock. They have sermonettes for Christianettes, if you've heard that phrase. no, All of the sermons make you feel good when you go out the door. No sermon mentions sin. No sermon gets into, you know the meddling of uh, what's your Christian life like? What's your spiritual life like? They, take, they don't preach those subjects, they preach the easy, smooth things. Folks, that's not feeding the flock. It's not feeding the flock. I have to preach things that I know you're not going to like. Well, I'd much rather kind of shave a bit off here, not mention that there, you know, cut this off here, bring something else in which is much nicer. Because you'd think better of me. I make you feel good, so you're going to, you know, reciprocate. And we'll all be fine, apart from when we hit the judgment. And then, boy, am am I in for it. If you look at James, quickly, go to James chapter 4, just a little bit to the left, or 3, sorry, chapter 3, listen to this, by brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. A stricter judgment. I better not be in the business of tickling ears. Because I have a judge to face. Okay. And I'm supposed to be serving him faithfully. You say, well, you don't do a very good job, Pastor Paul. Well, maybe I don't do the best job. Maybe I need to improve here and there. That's possible. Probable. But I can tell you this, my motive is to feed the church of God. My motive is to represent God and his word to you. That's what drives me. And so with that in mind, Peter then calls out three particular sins that a Christian pastor can fall into. Let me read it again in uh, verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. What are these three sins? Well... If somebody has to be compelled to do something, it's because they don't want to do it. They don't really have a heart for it. Or they're lazy. If someone is uh, exhorted not to do something for dishonest gain... That means that there is a tendency or could be a tendency for pastors to do things for gain, monetary gain. And it is interesting that every time that the New Testament speaks to pastors, it mentions covetousness. Every time. And thirdly, what we might call a lust for power. Not being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. A pastor should not come across as somebody who thinks he's better than everybody else. Now he has that, he has a role that is a a leader, yes? A ruler over the church. But he himself as a man is no better than anybody else. And I'm very well aware that uh, I have training in the bible and i might be able to beat you in a bible quiz but when it comes to fixing stuff or when it comes to uh, you know many skills and much knowledge that's out there i'm absolute rubbish i know where i'm going to end up i'll be at the back bottom of the pile so there's nothing to brag about i know my own sins i know my own problems my own faults And when you're talking to me about yours, I'm thinking, yeah, I I kind of know about that one myself. I'm familiar with that one. So the three sins are things that pastors need to watch out for. They need to be willing to do the job. And I think that that has to do with a calling upon their life. And they need to understand what that calling is. It is not just a a fleshly desire. I feel like going into the ministry. I feel God's calling me. Well, how do you know? You know your heart's deceitful, yes? If you know the Bible, you know your heart's deceitful. So you can't trust your feelings, folks. So the... The feeling to go into the ministry is not the call of God. It's you and your flesh. And it may well be you showing that you like power or you like to be the person that's up here in front of the microphone. There's a, ten- a certain romance about it, a certain, I don't know, um, attraction to some people. But uh, that's not what the call of God is. A call of God must be something that is instilled in you by God and it grows and it is tested over time. And it won't go away. As Spurgeon once said, you know, if you would rather be or if you could be a baker or a banker or a candlestick maker, then go and be it. You are not called by God. If you can do anything else, it shows you're not called. Now, folks. There are a lot of people in our pulpits who could do a lot of other things, and they're in our pulpits, and they're not called by God. I know some, a, a lot of men who are called by God, and you can always spot them, or I can anyway. And you can always spot the ones who you think, you don't really have, you know, you don't study Your sermons are kind of wishy-washy. You compromise all the time. You're basically a people pleaser. You use worldly methods to pastor your flock, worldly psychology and stuff. Not the word of God. There has to be something that's from God, based in the Word of God, otherwise it cannot be given to the congregation. So this willingness here has got to do not only with willing to do the work of a pastor, but willing to study. When people have come to me and said, "I, hey, um, I feel that I may be called into the ministry," that's a perfectly good thing to say. I say, "How many times have you read the Bible?" How many times have you read the Bible? Well, you know. uh, Because don't come to me and say that you're called to preach the word of God if you haven't read the Bible at least ten times all the way through. Because if you haven't, there's no willingness there, you see. You're not driven by the word of God. Well, that gets rid of nearly everybody in my experience. But that's okay because Jesus only called 12 disciples and they changed the world because they were the right men. 10,000 or whatever it was, I can't remember the number, was too much for Gideon for God to get the glory. So he whittled them down to 300. They were the ones that God used. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not the number of people that are pushed into the ministry. It's the right people. So Jesus says, what? Pray the Lord of the harvest that he send workers into the harvest. The right people. But it's God who sends. And so there must be this... Willingness, this willingness also, or this eagerness, not to do it for gain. Okay? If a, a person says, well, I, you know, I'm called into the ministry, but I've gotta have a, you know, a pension plan, and I've gotta have this much money, and I've gotta do this, you're not called. I'm sorry, you're not called. You, where's the life of faith, folks? Are you gonna trust the one who calls you or not? Is he God or isn't he? I'm not going to go into, uh, you know, vain repetitions of the way God has taken care of uh, me and my family. But he has been faithful to take care of us. And I know that from many other pastors of my fellow pastors, too. The third one is a lust for power. And uh, he says, not as lords over those entrusted to you. Not as lords. If you have a control freak for a pastor, he's not called. Now he might be, I'm not saying he's a micromanaging pastor who's a, a servant and who can be corrected and who's got some humility. That's fine. That's just a personality trait. But somebody who... Uh, has you know, will not be corrected. Somebody who will not listen. Somebody who has got to be or, or puts himself up as being somebody, and is all these affectations. That's not a true pastor. I'm sorry, that's not a true shepherd. We have to be examples to the flock. And when I say that, folks, I am aware that I'm not always the best example. So I ask you forgiveness for that. But I think I am an example of somebody who studies the word of God and tries to teach the word of God faithfully. I try to be an example of somebody who goes and and, uh, cares for people in the flock. Why is this important? Well, because of the third aspect here, the third, my third point in verse four. When the chief shepherd appears, oh dear, look at that, the chief shepherd. What's Peter doing? He's saying that Jesus is also a pastor, but he's the pastor. He's linking what we're supposed to do with what Jesus does. Folks, do you think Jesus compromises? Do you think Jesus is concerned about people's feelings? I wasn't concerned about Peter's feelings when he called him Satan. Or when he called the disciples evil. Or when he overturned the the tables and the money changers. Do you think John the Baptist was concerned with people's feelings? Do you think Elijah was? Do you think Moses was? Aaron was. He was concerned about it. And look what happened. Jesus is the chief shepherd, which means that any pastor needs to align himself and keep aligning himself and checking and checking. Am I teaching, am I tending in the way that uh, Jesus would approve? And when I say that, I say it with trembling because there are things in my ministry and things in me that Jesus would not approve of. I'm aware of that. Sometimes I don't know what they are. Sometimes I do and I have to confess them. But I do know this. I do know that this message to shepherds, this message to pastors and elders and so on, it's got to be taken seriously. And that's what I've tried to convey to you this morning. I take it seriously. I know Steve takes it seriously. I know Frank takes it seriously. He's just come on as an elder, but I know he takes it seriously. I don't want to end it like that. What's the takeaway then from this? The takeaway is that I hope that you will pray for me. I hope that you will pray for your pastors in the church. I hope that you will um, not be afraid to approach them. I know many of you are not. When you think that things are not going right or things are being overlooked, probably half the time we've already thought about them. And um, also realize that the teaching that you get, even today's teaching, comes because I'm very concerned that I don't have to face the judgment of God. For being a wishy-washy pink tea pastor. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I'm not saying that it's a literal crown. It's probably figurative because there are a bunch of crowns that are spoken of in Scripture and if you had all of them on your head, you'd look really silly. But... Um, But the idea is, just like the you know they used to say that the wife was the crown of her husband and so on. The the idea is that you will receive the same glory. Do you see? You will receive a reward for your faithfulness, and it's just like um, whatever you're going through. If you go through it for the Lord. With faith toward God, even when you don't understand what's going on, God sees it and he'll reward you for your faith. Not purely for your comprehension of what's going on, because many times you don't understand. But for your faith in God. Your resoluteness as you go through it. For your obedience. And it's the same thing for pastors too. You know, there are many things that cause pastors to be d- distressed or burnt out or discouraged, um, many things. But God's not looking for, you know, worldly success. What he's looking for is faithfulness, faithfulness. So pray that we'll be faithful shepherds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless uh, this passage to us all. And imprint it, particularly on myself and the uh, elders of this church. And pray, gracious Father, that uh, you would be pleased to uh, forgive those uh, things that are not the way you want them to be and help us to do better. And please bless this church and this congregation through your word and by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen.